Hello, this is Tim Convoy, the pastor of New Life Community Church located in Nashville, Indiana. I'd like to thank you for visiting our podcast, and I trust that God will just bless you and encourage you and speak to your heart as you listen to this message. Thank you again for joining us, and God bless you. We're going to be in John 19, and you know you've been like, when are we getting back to John? On your way to John, there's Nancy over there to your right. Everyone wave to Nancy. Looking good. God's healing. Nancy, dig to do. It looks nice. God protected her from her heart attack, and she's with us today. It's awesome. Oh, yes, on your way to John 19, put your new bulletin in Genesis 22. You say, well, I already went past it. It's okay. You can go backwards. Genesis 22. Let's look to the Lord in prayer. Father, as we come before you, we do offer up our voices in praise for your touch in Jennifer's life. I remember those long nights, those many hours of just waiting and wondering if she was going to pull through. And yet, Lord, as she gives you praise, so do we, knowing that it's you who pulled her through. As Peter was sinking in that water, it was you that reached down and lifted him up. And as Jennifer was that evening, it was you that reached down and lifted her up. And, and we bless you for that day. We bless you for the anniversary. We can recognize your goodness in her life. And also your goodness in Nancy's life this past week. And, and uh, Father, just touching her, healing her, using the doctors. And, and, and Lord, you're just such a good, good God to us. What is man that thou art mindful of him? Nothing, Lord. We are like the grains of sand on the sea, yet you think about us. And your mind is set upon us. And we love you, and we bless you for that. This morning, as we gather around your word, we ask that your spirit would move in our midst. You would speak to our hearts, and you would stir us as we listen to something that maybe we're so familiar with that it becomes too familiar. And we forget the awe that surrounds it. So Father, this day, draw us into your presence. Bless us as we look into your word and may your spirit just move in our midst and just bring up that joy, a wellspring of joy of your wonderful grace bestowed upon us. Anoint the preaching of your word. Hide me behind the cross and may people see Jesus this morning. And Father, we bless you for what you're going to do. Move in our midst, we ask in Jesus' holy name and all God's people said Amen and amen. Before we get reading, I want to ask you a question. How many know what Jehovah Jireh means? Anyone? 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 K? Of course we know K knows that one. Few of them. Few of them. What does it mean? Jehovah Jireh. My provider. Jehovah, the Lord, my provider. Many of us know what Jehovah Jireh means, but few of us know the context in which Jehovah Jireh was introduced to us where God was introduced as the Lord, my provider. We forget the context of it. We often think of Jehovah Jireh in the sense that when I have a a physical need, a medical need, God provides my healing, and we bless Him for it, and indeed He does. We often think that God provides when we have a shortage in our life. You know, the end of the month, God bless you, and bills come in, and we say, man, you know, Lord, provide. And He pulls through again. Remember, it was always... The only money miracle in the Bible is to pay taxes. Right? Go catch the fish, take the coin out, pay the taxes. So God does provide, and we bless Him for that. And But we often think of God providing in our everyday things, and we praise God for being Jehovah Jireh. Sorry, Frank and Eva, you got to come a lot earlier to get a back seat. <laughs> oh, they followed, they followed. No attention, no attention. Their grandson, Mitchell, got married yesterday. It was awesome. It was awesome. But what is the context? Where is it that that name of the Lord was introduced? Where was this altar built on which, on this altar, on that day, uh, it was told that Jehovah provides? As a matter of fact, it will be told Jehovah Jireh will provide on this mountain. What is the context? What is the Old Testament picture that foreshadows a New Testament reality? Well, I'm glad you asked. And we're going to look at that in Genesis 22, where we learn the name Jehovah Jireh and where it comes from. 
Genesis 22, follow with me, starting at verse 1. Sometime later, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Then God said, take your son. Now, notice how exact God is. Your only son. There's a reason why he's emphasizing these things. Isaac, whom you love. Abraham knew he loved him, but God is emphasizing these things for a purpose. And go to the region of Moriah. Moriah means sorrow. Moriah is a ridge that runs north and south, uh, just west of the Mount of Olives. As a matter of fact, Mount Moriah will be 777 meters above sea level. Case 777, in case you're ever wondering. He says, go to the region of Moriah, and then he tells Abraham to do this, sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains I will tell you about. What an instruction. Early the next morning, because I'm sure if you were Abraham, you would not have slept all night. Early the next morning, he got up and he saddled his donkey, and he took with him two of his servants and his son Isaac, two servants representing the law and the prophets. When he had cut enough wood for the burnt offering, notice he cut the wood, he set out for the place God had told him about. On the third day, another important reference, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. He said to his servants, stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. Now notice the plural pronouns. We will worship and then we will come back. Does anyone see any faith in there? We're on the third day. We will go there, we will worship, and we collectively will come back. Amen. Gives me goosebumps, holy goosebumps. You love those things. Abraham took the wood. The father took the wood and placed, or for the burnt offering, and placed it on his son. Now you would think the servants would have done that. After all, there are servants that work for Abraham, but no. He didn't instruct the servants to do it. Abraham, the father himself, put the wood on his son, Isaac. And he himself carried the fire and the knife, the instrument of death, as the two of them went up together. You know, I so much appreciate that line right there. As the two of them went up together. They'll say it again. And then it tells us this. Isaac spoke up. And said to his father, Abraham, he says, Father, yes, my son, Abraham replied. The fire and wood are here, Isaac said, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on together. Notice again, it says, emphasize, and the two went on together, the joint venture. When they reached the place God told him about, Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood on it. He bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Now, Isaac, what did Isaac do when all this was taking place? Nothing. What did Isaac say when this was taking place? He opened not his mouth. He put up no resistance. He willingly submitted to his father as he stood there and allowed his father to tie him and then to lay him on that altar. And if you were to look chronologically, he is not a little toddler at this time. He's a young man at this time, able to carry enough sufficient wood on his back up a mountain to, for that altar and a burnt offering. And yet he opens not his mouth. No resistance. Then, speaking to Abraham, he reached out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham! Here I am, he replied. 
Do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Do not do anything to him. I, now I know that you fear God, because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. You see, through this act, Abraham demonstrated his faith to God. In the New Testament, we'll see God demonstrating his love to man. Abraham looked up, and there in a thicket he saw a ram caught by its horns. He went over and he took the ram and sacrificed it as the burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the place Jehovah-Jireh, the Lord will provide. And notice, and to this day it is said, on the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided. Jehovah-Jireh. Fast forward now, John chapter 19. John 19. Remember the whole picture we just saw. By the way, someone once said, well, you don't really think Abraham would have done it, do you? Yes, I do. God did too. As a matter of fact, in Genesis, or excuse me, in Hebrews chapter 11, you'll find out that Abraham believed something that will not be introduced till years later, centuries later. He believed, it says, that God could, would even raise him from the dead. He believed in the resurrection before there ever was a resurrection. He says, if this is what it takes, because God's going to keep his promise of that seed. Now, we fast forward. Genesis, or John 19, verse 16. Finally, Pilate handed him over to be crucified. So the soldiers took charge of Jesus. Carrying his own cross, he went out to the place of the skull. Carrying that own wood. And I, I know the Cyrenian will help out, but the wood was now placed on his shoulders. The Son, the only begotten Son. Went out to the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. In Latin, it is called Calvary. In the Old Testament, it is called Moriah. Place of sorrow. 777 meters above sea level. Here they crucified him, and with him two others, one on each side, and Jesus in the middle. Pilate had an announcement prepared. This is a legal document, literally. And it was fastened to the cross. Above the head of each person who was crucified was the crime for which they were being crucified. So the charges for which, whether it was murder, sedition, whatever it was, those charges were nailed above the head of the typical criminal that was being crucified. However, that which was fastened, it says, it read this, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. No crime at all. Many of the Jews read this sign for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and the sign was written in Aramaic, Latin, and Greek. The chief priests of the Jews protested to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews, but that this man claimed to be king of the Jews. And Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. When the soldiers crucified Jesus, they took his clothes and divided them in four shares, one for each of them with the undergarment, literally it's the tunic, remaining. The garment was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. Let's not tear it, they said to one another. Let's decide by lot who it will go to. Interesting, the care they would give to this piece of garment. They wouldn't damage it. They wouldn't injure this piece of garment. And yet something far more precious was just crucified to the cross. This happened so that the scripture might be fulfilled, completed, which said, They divided my garments among them and cast lots for my clothes. So this is what the soldiers did. Near the cross, Jesus stood, near the cross of Jesus stood his mother, his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. 
When Jesus saw his mother there and the disciple whom he loved, meaning John, that's how John never referred to himself in the first person. So John standing nearby, he said to his mother, Dear woman, here is your son. And to the disciple, here is your mother. And from that time on, this disciple took her into his home. Interesting, James, the brother of Jesus, was not giving, given charge to take care of Mary. Interesting. He wasn't a believer at this time. But John the Baptist, or John the disciple, was a believer. Later, knowing that all is now completed, and so that the scripture would be fulfilled, in other words, one last thing, Jesus said, I am thirsty. A jar of wine vinegar was there, so they soaked a sponge in it and put the sponge on a stalk of the hyssop plant and lifted it up to Jesus' lips. When he had received the drink, Jesus said, It is finished. With that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit, which only he can do. None of us can do it. None of us can decide when we will die. Yet Jesus did. He decided. Now it was the day of preparation, and the next day was to be a special Sabbath. There were two Sabbaths back to back. Because the Jews did not want the bodies left on the cross during the Sabbath, they asked Pilate, to have the legs broken and the bodies taken down. The soldiers therefore came and broke the legs of the first man who had been crucified with Jesus, and then those of the other. But when they came to Jesus and found that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. Instead, one of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear, bringing sudden flow of blood and water. The man who saw it has given testimony, and his testimony is true. He knows that he tells the truth and he testifies so that you also may believe. These things happen so that the scripture would be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And another scripture says they will look upon him whom they have pierced. Which, by the way, will also be at the return of Christ. They will look upon him whom they have pierced. If you were to go to back in the day the National Archives, where they had the Dead Sea Scrolls placed up on the wall, and you can tour the Dead Sea Scrolls. As I was going through it, I noticed, and I thought quite interesting, the very last scripture on the wall that was translated says, and they shall look upon him whom they have pierced. Referring to the second coming of Christ. And there it was right on the the wall. Now, their interpretation of the text was, they shall look upon him who is piercing in his glance. In other words, can look right through you. And I said, wow. It says what it says, amen? (laughs) And it shows us the context in which it is said. But as I look at our text here, my point is Jehovah Jireh. We know the name, we use the name, we reference the name, but Jehovah Jireh, the Lord will provide. And that name was given in the context, first of all, of the necessity of a lamb. The Lord will provide a sacrifice, Abraham tells Isaac. You see, when we look at Genesis, what was missing was the lamb. All the components for the sacrifice was there. And Isaac says, Father, uh, here's wood and here's fire. He says, but where's the most critical component to this offering? Where is the lamb? I see everything else. But he was old enough, he knew something was missing. And it's interesting, Abraham responded by saying, God will provide himself a lamb. Now, in some translations, like the NIV, it's unfortunate that they translate it that God himself will provide a lamb. That's not how it reads. It doesn't read God himself will provide a lamb. The way it reads is, God will provide himself a lamb. You follow that? God will provide himself a lamb. You see, you can read that in two ways, the way it's written out. But when you, you move it where God himself will provide a lamb, well, that's, that's totally different. You don't, you miss the second connotation there. Are you with me on this? There's somebody going, what? That's how, matter of fact, some, some may have translations. God will provide himself a lamb. Anyone have one that translates? Anyone? Few of them. Amen. God will provide himself a lamb. 
You see, when we look here, the first thing Jehovah Jireh does is provide a lamb, but God provides Himself a lamb. When we come to the Gospel of John, do you remember how it starts? Just like the book of Genesis. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Amen? And the Word, verse 14, became flesh, and we beheld His glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Amen. And then a few verses later, in verse 29, John the Baptist, seeing Jesus come, is going to say this, Behold, look, the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. This is God's Lamb, and this is God Himself. God has provided the Lamb, and God has provided Himself as the Lamb. He was goodness. Abraham, way back centuries earlier, speaks prophetically, talking to his son Isaac. And what a name. It means laughter, joy. And here His only begotten Son travels up that Mount Moriah with Him. And when He asks that question, where is the Lamb? He says, God, Jehovah Jireh, God will provide Himself a Lamb. You see, friends, when I think about that context, there on Mount Moriah, when even Abraham said, even to this day, on this very mountain, Jehovah Jireh, the Lord will provide it. It will be provided. And we sit back and say, what will be provided? What will be provided? Not just now when Abraham, when that provision came, but he says futuristically, from that day forward, he says, on this mountain, it will be provided. And what is it? The Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. The Creator being willing to come down and allow the creature to put Him on that cross and to kill Him, to crucify Him. Why? Because God knew that only a holy God could satisfy His holy law. You see, God designed the law and raised the bar so high that only He could get over it. He knew that none of us as sinners could ever get over it. We couldn't keep ten laws. We couldn't keep the ten commandments. As a matter of fact, uh, the Jews, knowing that, reduced them down to what they know as the ten words. Instead of commands, these are just the ten words, and they would have ten words. And even that they couldn't keep. And the, and the rich young ruler would say, you know, which is the greatest? <laughs> Can you boil it down further? And he says, sure. I'll boil it down to two. Two commands. Love the Lord God with all your heart, mind, and soul. And what? Love your neighbor as yourself. Can you keep those two without ever breaking it? No way. You see, a holy God never lowers His holy standard. He always keeps his standards high and holy, knowing that only he can go over that bar. And knowing that none of us could do that. That's why God says that he himself will become the lamb. He himself will provide himself. Jehovah Jireh will provide Jehovah as the lamb. He says, I will go down and I will be the lamb. As a matter of fact, he knew that only he could satisfy his holy commands. We'll get further into that later. But Isaiah 53, 11 says, And he, Jehovah, shall see the suffering of his soul and shall be satisfied. He will provide himself a lamb and the Father will see the suffering of his righteous servant, Jesus, his son, his only beloved son. He will see his suffering and he'll be satisfied. It'll be complete. You see, when we think of this text, God knew that only an eternal God could pay an eternal penalty. You see, the wage of sin is death. It's an eternal penalty. 
You and I can't pay it, but an eternal God can pay an eternal penalty in an instant. And that's why Jehovah Jireh will provide the lamb. He will provide himself a lamb. Secondly, Jehovah Jireh, the Lord will provide for Isaac, he said, a substitute. Remember there in Genesis? And he saw the ram and he took the ram and offered the ram as a burnt offering instead of his son. Way back in Genesis, way back with Father Abraham, there was the substitutionary atonement. Instead of the, the only begotten son of Isaac, or Abraham being killed on that altar, he was then removed from it, and then the ram was placed in his stead. Substitutionary atonement. When I think of the context in which we have read through John's Gospel, and we think of Pilate, and remember how many times Pilate was trying to get out of making the decision, trying to even wash his hands. I'm innocent of this man's blood. Uh, when he was guilty, through and through, because only he could have someone executed. No one else could have done that. Only he could give the order. But yet he's trying to get out of this. And remember one of the ways he tried to get out of this? He says, well, I know what I'll do. They have a custom on the Passover that they can have someone released from prison, especially if they felt that this someone uh, you know, was wrongfully jailed or something. And so he looked, he said, well, obviously they're going to choose Jesus. So I will pick the most notorious criminal in the palace prison. I will pick one who is about to be executed, who's on death row right now. In other words, the case is closed, the sentence is given, everything's done except the execution of justice. He goes, I will take the worst of the worst, and I will ask them which one they want of the two, the innocent Jesus or the guilty Barabbas. Or not, yes, Barabbas. By the way, Barabbas, bar, means son, Abba, son of the father. Interesting, Barabbas means son of the father. Now is, like John 8, you are of your father the devil? I don't know. His name just means son of the father. You want the son of God? Or do you want the son of man? Son of the father. He thought for sure that they would pick Jesus and thereby prevent him from making the decision. Friends, Jesus, as you know, then became Barabbas' substitute. And I think there are two questions that struck fear into the heart of Barabbas. Two questions that Barabbas did not hear. Two questions Barabbas did not know. All Barabbas knew was the answers to the questions. He didn't know the question. Now I really got you bewildered. You're going, huh? Let me explain this. In court... Pilate's court. He is at the Praetorium. He is on a, it's a raised platform higher than this, protecting the crowds. It would probably be quite a bit higher. He would look down on the crowds. He is going to ask them a question concerning a notable prisoner named Barabbas. For some reason, and I don't know if it was due to Hollywood or what it is, but for some reason, I see Barabbas on the platform as well. But do you realize it's not that way? I went through all the Gospels and I said, he's never presented physically to him. It just says that there is a notable prisoner. And the palace prison from the Praetorium would be 300 yards away, and they're locked away in that prison cell, because this was not thought of earlier, it was spontaneous, Locked away is Barabbas. And Barabbas would be out of earshot from one man sitting on, standing on the Praetorium. But he would not be out of earshot of the angry crowd. As a matter of fact, we're going to do a little role play here. We're going to pull up a screen. Let's stand together. They warned me downstairs. They're doing the walls of Jericho, and it might be a little loud. But he said, that's okay. We're going to do our own role playing up here. Can you see that? I try to use the smallest font I can. These are the two questions. Whom would I deliver unto you? And then Pilate is saying, what shall I do with Jesus who is called the Christ? Now, I will be Pilate. I'm up in the Praetorium. You will be the angry crowd. All right? 
You could do that. Barabbas is 300 yards away. All right? I'm going to turn my microphone off just for effect. All right? Because that's really how it, he, Pilate did on the microphone. All right? You ready? Pretty, it's pretty angry. It's hard. It's hard even to say those words and think that you just said them, isn't it? It's hard for me even to think that as a lost man, I would be saying the same thing. I would be egged on just like everyone else would. But I don't want to think ask you to think of yourself as the crowd. I want to ask you to think of yourself as Barabbas. 300 yards away. Who did not hear my questions. He did not hear me ask, whom shall I release? All he heard was his name shouted by an angry crowd. Barabbas! 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 And like any of our names, it catches our attention. And we're wondering, what's going on? And he doesn't hear the second question. What shall I do with Jesus, who is called the Christ? All he hears is, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. And you can imagine the terror that went through Barabbas' heart in that palace prison 300 yards from there. When all he hears is his name. And the yelling of an angry crowd saying, crucify him. God bless you. And you can imagine, were it you, to be sitting in that dark prison as you hear the footsteps of those Roman soldiers coming closer and closer. You can imagine the terror that would run through your heart as your heart would be pounding as you hear the keys to the prison cell rattle as they start to unlock the door. And suddenly, just as you're prepared for that guard to grab you and haul you off to a bloody and brutal beating and crucifixion, all of a sudden you hear something. You don't believe it. And you think to yourself, no, he didn't just say that. Until all of a sudden you hear it again and he yells in there, you heard me? Get up and get out of here. Free to go. And when his paralyzed shock wore off and yours wore off, you would race to the light of that opening and you would wonder to yourself and you would probably verbalize, what's going on? I'm on death row. I'm scheduled to be executed. The crowd said, Barabbas, and crucify him. What's going on here? As you hear the soldier mutter to you, get out of here. It's your lucky day. Jesus is dying in your place on that cross today. And you are fearfully bewildered. And you're watching cautiously because you're not sure. And you don't want to take any chances. So as as the crowd's gathered and Jesus is about to go by, you're on the very edge of the crowd in case they recognize you. And yet there goes Jesus carrying the wood up the hill. There goes Jesus carrying the timber, the cross that was made for you. You were the one that was to die that day. But Jehovah Jireh, Barabbas. Jehovah Jireh. The Lord provided for you, Barabbas, a substitute. 
He provided himself a lamb as a substitute in your place. And you get to go free. And if the Son shall make you free, you shall be free indeed. Though fear says, what if they catch me again? Though fear says, what if I slip up? Though fear says, what if they find out? Though fear says all these things, God says, if the Son shall make you free. Remember, I'm a purist. Don't just say set you free. It means make you free. There's a difference. I can break you out of prison and set you free, but it doesn't make you a free person. When God saves us, He justified us. He acquitted us of all unrighteousness, and He made us free. Never to be tried again. Amen? If the Son shall make you free, you shall be free indeed. Free to follow, free to flee. He says you're free. Barabbas learned that on that mountain, Jehovah Jireh, the Lord provided Himself a lamb, and the Lord provided me a substitute. And on that mountain, Jehovah Jireh provided the satisfaction. The satisfaction of the Scriptures being fulfilled. All the scriptural prerequisites that said that He had to be without spot, without blemish. He had to be as a lamb going to the slaughter that opened not His mouth. He had to be one who put up no resistance. Jesus fulfilled all the prerequisites. Like Isaac who could have fled, Jesus could have fled. But He was there to do the Father's will and submitted to the Father as He went to that cross. And He satisfied the scriptural prerequisites and the prophetic requirements. Right down to He would not even give up His Spirit until He knew there was one more verse that says, I thirst, because they had to fulfill the Scripture. You see, friends, Jesus satisfied the holy demands by paying the sinner's debt. And when He hung on that cross, He uttered these words that we know so well. When He knew that all was fulfilled, Jesus says, It is finished. It's finished. It means to be completely done. It is, as you know, it's the Greek word to telestai. It is an accounting term. Glenn, so you know, you accountants out there. It was an accounting term that they found written across a bill of sale. It was an accounting term that whenever anyone owed a debt and it was paid in full, they would write across it to telestai. Paid in full. Zero balance. Nothing left to pay. It's all paid. Nothing more is needed. Jesus, there on the cross, cries out to Telestai, It is paid in full. I, the eternal God, Jehovah Jireh, has provided Himself as the Lamb and the sinner's substitute and satisfied the holy demands of God. And He says... It's finished. It is finished. There's nothing left to pay. As 1 John 2, 2 tells us, for He was the propitiation. Another translation, He was the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And not for ours only, but for the sins of the entire world. Jesus. He died as our substitute but he died as a satisfactory payment. The court is closed. The sinner is forever acquitted. Never to be tried again. Interesting story I read and I said, boy, that is so, such a picture of grace. It's an interesting story. It's a story about Fiorello LaGuardia. Anyone ever heard of Fiorello LaGuardia? A few of you. Anyone ever flown into LaGuardia Airport? Okay. That airport was named after the mayor of New York City, who was the mayor through the Great Depression and most of World War II. 
And it's interesting, he was known as the little flower because he was five foot four and he always wore a carnation on his lapel. And he was adorned by many of the New Yorkers. He was so loved and appreciated. He was a colorful character. Uh, he often would go in the fire trucks to the fires. He would go with the police to the raids. But he was known also for going and taking entire orphanages out to the baseball games. He was also known for whenever the newspapers went on strike, he would read the funny papers over the radio to the children. So he didn't he said, I don't care about the newspapers, I'll read it to you. And he would do that. Well, one bitterly cold night in January 1935, the mayor turned up at a night court that served a porous ward of the city. And when he turned up, he dismissed the judge that evening, and he took the bench. That was his custom. He did some funny things. Within a few minutes, a tattered old woman was brought before him, charged with stealing a loaf of bread. She told LaGuardia that her daughter's husband had deserted her, and her daughter was sick, and two grandchildren were starving. But the shopkeeper uh, from whom the bread was stolen refused to drop charges. And he says, quote, It is a real bad neighborhood, Your Honor, the man told the mayor. She's got to be punished to teach others around here a lesson. LaGuardia sighed. He turned to the woman and said, quote, I've got to punish you. The law makes no exceptions, $10 or 10 days. But even as he pronounced sentence, the mayor had already reached into his pocket, extracted a bill, and tossed it into the famous sombrero. He, had a, he literally had a sombrero, and you paid your fines in the sombrero. Tossed it in the sombrero, and he said, quote, Here is a $10 fine, which I now remit. And furthermore, I am going to fine everyone in this courtroom 50 cents, for living in a town where a person has to steal so that her grandkids can eat. Mr. Bailiff, collect the fines and give them to the defendant. So on that day, the New York City newspapers reported that $47.50 was turned over to a bewildered old lady who had stolen a loaf of bread to feed her starving grandchildren. Fifty cents of that amount being contributed by the red-faced grocery store owner. <laughs> While some 70 petty criminals, people with traffic violations, and the New York City policemen, each of whom had just paid 50 cents for the privilege of doing so, gave the mayor a standing ovation. When you think of that real-life account, that is such a picture of grace right there. She was guilty. The law had to be satisfied. But the mayor, who didn't have to do it, he went and footed the payment himself. He paid the fine himself. But grace doesn't stop simply by paying our fine. When Jesus died on the cross and said, it is finished, it didn't stop simply by paying our debt. Now it turns around, instead of just showing mercy, it shows grace and gives to us what we don't deserve. Collects $47.50. That was big money back in those days. And gives it to the woman who was the criminal. Who was caught red-handed. Who didn't even plead innocent. She, she just said, this is my case. Grace was shown and she left bewildered from the courtroom. And friends, that's the picture of the cross. We're not asked to add anything to that. We're not asked to add baptism to Christ's finished work. We're not asked to ask, add church membership. We're not asked to add our good works to Jesus' finished work. It's finished. It's paid in full. There's nothing left. And in so doing, he then turns around and gives gifts unto us the guilty ones and says you may go free the amazing part of our great God is that he didn't pay the debt for just a few 
He paid the debt for the entire world. God bless you. Every lost man out there, every lost woman out there, every atheist, every pagan, every heathen, every everything out there, their debt is already paid. Aaron said it so well. Why do you insist on paying it? It would be like that old woman saying, no, Mr. Mayor, I'm going to go to jail myself. Obviously, he didn't have the $10. I'll go and pay the debt. It's crazy when it's already paid. I want to draw your attention as we close to Colossians. It's on the front of your bulletin, but also I want us to read something. As we remember the crime of the criminal that was posted above the cross. In Colossians chapter 2, verse 13, it says, When you were dead in your sins, and the uncircumcision of your sinful nature. We learn about that on Wednesdays. So when you are guilty, when you are dead, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us, how much? All our sins. Forgive means to release from a debt. That's what it means to forgive. To release from a debt. Jesus Christ released us from a debt, not by ignoring the debt, but by paying the debt in full. Amen? And he says he has forgave us of all our sins. Having canceled the written code, the handwriting of ordinances. Remember what Pilate had. Write down this code. Write down this legal document of their crime. It says, having canceled the written code with its regulations, that was against us, that stood opposed to us. And he took it away, what? Nailing it to the cross. Amen. Every sin, that whole shopping list of your sins, a whole shopping list of my sins, every sin I ever committed, every sin I will yet commit, all the sins of the world were taken out of the way, God says, and God took them and nailed them to the cross. That's the crime for which Jesus died. Amen. But it doesn't stop there. He said this, and I love this one. In having disarmed, means to take the weapon away. Having disarmed the powers and the authorities. Who do you think he disarmed? Saint, yep. Give me that weapon. Do you realize he's, I wouldn't say armless, but he's weaponless? The only weapon he ever has against you is a weapon that you give to him. That's what he says. He says, to reckon ourselves to be dead in Christ, indeed in Christ. But he says, yield not your members, your body, as instruments, as weapons of unrighteousness. Don't give your body as the weapon to Satan who has no weapon, who's been disarmed. But give your weapons. Don't keep them yourself. He says, give them to God as instruments, as weapons of righteousness. Read Romans 6 sometimes. Wonderful text. But he doesn't stop there. He disarms Satan. And then it says, and he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. What does he say? He said he took your sin and my sin, nailed it to the cross. And then, this is what I like about the public spectacle. You know what it means? To have a public victory parade. Jesus takes it, our sins, nails it to the cross. He says it's finished. And then he goes to this a victory parade today. Yeah. I set them free today. Yeah. Amen. What is up with us sour-faced Christians out here? Jesus out there going, man, it is finished. And he's having a victory parade. And I'll tell you, if he could celebrate, I think it's time that we join in the parade. Amen. Amen. That's what I'm saying. He says, I disarm the power of Satan. I disarm the authority he had over you. He's got no power over you. He ain't got no gun, amen. Oh, don't get me going, man. 
I'm telling you, and Jesus says, and after I did it, I threw a victory parade. As a matter of fact, he led captivity captive. He said, come on, we're going to glory. And then off he went. I'm just like, wow. How come we don't get it sometimes? <laughs> How come we sit around, mopey, mopey, old man, woe is me? We're not victims, friends. We are victors in Christ. We're not even conquerors. We're more than conquerors through Christ that loves us. Do you believe that today? Then I say join in the parade. And it's easy to do with us here today because we got norm. Amen? Amen. But you're not going to have norm tomorrow except norm will. I say tomorrow when Monday morning hits you. And the devil wants you to think that he's still got the weapon. And he's going to knock you down. He goes, ah, look at you. You call yourself a Christian? Ha! Huh. I'm talking Monday morning. Will you march in the parade tomorrow morning? Man, we'll all get up and grab that. Well, I don't even know what they call it. The baton, you know? Baton? Okay, got something right. We'll all join in that. But when you're all by yourself, would you get up off the ground and say, wait a minute. He's got no authority over me. He's got no power over me. Time to start marching for Jesus. Amen. That's what I'm talking about. And that's my prayer. I said, Lord, help us at New Life. Help me to get in a parade. To get in that victory parade. And remember, it is victory. All this is Jehovah Jireh. On this mountain, it will be provided. And it has been provided. Amen. He says, now. It's all nailed to the cross. The power and authority has been disarmed from him. He says, now come on. Time to join the parade. My face is going to break. It hurts so much. (laughs) I just like, whoa. It's going to be glory, isn't it? It is glory. Praise God. Father, as we close our time this morning, it is all about you. It is not Tim will provide It's not new life will provide. It's not our jobs will provide. It is not the doctors will provide. It is Jehovah who will provide. And Lord God, this day we lay our hearts before you and ask that you'll help us to get up and get in that victory parade. We love you, Lord. And today, there may be folks that need deliverance today. There may be something that they got on and there's something on their back they need knocked off of. Lord God, just work in their life. Help people lay addictions at this altar. Help them to get in that victory march. Help today to be a day of faith. He did this so that you may also believe, he says. Help it to be a day of faith. Move in our midst. If there's even one that's not sure they have eternal life, let this be a day where they know for sure whether they're in this room or listening over the internet, that they know 100% sure if they were to die today, they spend eternity in heaven because Jesus has been accepted as their Savior. Work in our midst, we ask, and be glorified, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.